Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with Bela Sebro, and welcome to the definitive rap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. Yesterday, January 27th, we observed International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Many articles have been written about this special day, including how the world treats Holocaust education and how exactly the Holocaust is taught and explained. In 2019, a Pew study showed that the majority of adult Americans did not know that 6 million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust or that Hitler came to power through the democratic process. There are many aspects of the Holocaust, too many to fit into one interview. How did the Holocaust start? How did so many people stand by silently while others actually joined in? During this interview, I will have many questions for our distinguished guest, famed attorney Eliza Lewin, whom Bela will introduce shortly. But on the topic of those who actually stood out and risked their lives to, th- to save thousands of Jews, many of us know about Oscar Schindler and Raoul Wallenberg. But there was someone else who most people never heard of, whom Eliza will talk about today, and that is Ambassador Shiwan Sugihara, the Japanese consul in Kovno, Lithuania, who disobeyed his government's orders in 1940 and issued transit visas through Japan to thousands of Jews seeking to flee war-torn Europe. And he wasn't widely known until 1985, when Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Memorial Authority, honored him as one of the righteous amongst nations. I know, Bela, you had a few thoughts as well before you introduce Eliza. Uh, Yes, thank you, Alan. As we just had International Holocaust Remembrance Day, the triggers which are always there for Holocaust survivors, any designated day of remembrance makes it that much more so painful. And as a child of Holocaust survivors, I can attest to that. There are those who say it's been so many years, why can't the survivors and their children forget and get over it? The answer is they can't, and they should never forget. The atrocities of the horrific murders of more than 6 million Jews and all those the Aryan philosophy deemed as inferior should never be forgotten. It doesn't matter that so many years have passed. It should never be forgotten. And what's more fascinating is that as time goes on, there are more and more stories that come to surface, not just about the Holocaust, but about the unsung heroes who saved thousands of Jews from the Holocaust. And those beautiful souls should also never be forgotten. One such hero, Shiwan Sugiara, a Japanese diplomat, defied his own government's orders by issuing handwritten transit visas in 1940 to more than 6,000 Lithuanian Jews, enabling them to escape Nazi-occupied Europe, thereby saving their lives. He was honored as a hero and is referred to as the Japanese Schindler. With us today, to talk about him as Eliza 
D. Lewin. She is the president of the Lewis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law, a nonprofit organization established to advance the civil and human rights of the Jewish people and promote justice for all. The Brandeis Center conducts research, education, and legal advocacy to combat the resurgence of anti-Semitism on college and university campuses. It empowers students by training them to understand their legal rights and educates administrators on best practices to combat racism and anti-Semitism on campus, which is very relevant to, to the Holocaust. Ms. Lewin is also a co-founder and partner in Lewin and Lewin, where she specializes in litigation, mediation, and government relations. Ms. Lewin has represented numerous high-profile clients. In fact, in 2014, Lewin argued Zivotofsky versus Kerry, the Jerusalem passport case, before the U.S. Supreme Court, a case involving uh, the, const- the constitutionality of a law granting any American citizen born in Jerusalem the right to list Israel as the place of birth on his or her U.S. passport. Uh, the Supreme Court, in that, in that particular case, uh, the Supreme Court held that the President of the United States has the exclusive authority to recognize foreign sovereigns. In fact, this was the case that paved the way for former President Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and recognition of Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. After 18 years, Ms. Lewin brought this pro bono case to successful resolution in October 2020, when Secretary of State Pompeo revised the U.S. passport regulations and Ambassador David Friedman presented her client with the very first U.S. passport to list Israel as place of birth for a U.S. citizen born in Jerusalem. Ms. Lewin, together with her father, Nathan Lewin, also successfully represented the Boehm family. That, that, that was the terrorist case that was very well known in its landmark civil tort litigation, which established the, ter- the right of American victims of terror to obtain damages under American law against organizations that knowingly provide financial support to international terrorist groups. Ms. Lewin began her career in Israel, where she clerked on the Supreme Court for Deputy President Justice Menachem Elon. Ms. Lewin, Lewin is the immediate past president of the American Association of Jewish Lawyers and Jurists. In January 2020, Ms. Lewin was awarded the AAJLJ's Distinguished Pursuit of Justice Award. Lisa, I know that was a long bio. I couldn't cut it short. I tried to cut it short. There's no way to cut it short. It, it would not have done justice. Lisa, welcome to the definitive rap. I understand that you grew up hearing from uh, the first person account of the heroism of Ambassador. Please share that with us. Sure. Thank you, Alan. And thank you, Bela, for inviting me to join you today. Shiuni Sugihara is a name that I, I actually grew up hearing I knew that I actually owe my existence to his kindness and to his courage. Shuni Sugihara, as you heard and as you said, um, really saved my grandparents and my father's life. My father, Nathan Lewin, was born in Lodz, Poland uh, in 1936. Uh, My grandmother, my paternal grandmother, had grown up in Amsterdam. She was Dutch. 
And when she married my grandfather, who was not only a Polish citizen, he and my great-grandparents, my great-grandfather, had been very active in Polish politics. My great-grandfather, Rabbi Aaron Lewin, was actually elected twice to the Polish SEM. That was the Polish parliament before the war. My grandfather had been a member of the local city council in Lodz. Um, so my grandmother got married. She ended up having to give up her Dutch citizenship at that point and was living in Lodz. But she was following very closely the news about Hitler and what he was saying. And um, she was never really happy in Poland and got my grandfather to agree that if Germany ever invaded Poland, they would leave. And that's what happened. In 1939, in September 39, when Poland invaded, when Germany invaded Poland, they fled. Um, the stories that I heard growing up were that they um, smuggled across the border, carried my father as a three-year-old through the forest um, into Lithuania. It happened that when the Germans invaded Poland, my grandmother's parents and her brother were visiting from Amsterdam and were with them. My great-grandfather, uh, actually, he was a businessman in, in Amsterdam, flew back. He took a commercial flight from Warsaw back to um, Amsterdam to go take care of his business. There were stories about how he had been you know, sewing diamonds into the lining of his clothes. He ultimately ended up um, being captured and died in Auschwitz. The family never saw him again. Uh, but my grandmother's mother and brother were with her and they also smuggled across the border into Lithuania and they reached Vilna. But when they were in Vilna, my grandmother realized that they couldn't stay in Lithuania, that this was just a short reprieve. And she was trying to figure out how the family could continue to move, how they could leave um, and, and where could they go. And so as a former Dutch citizen, and since she was traveling with her mother who still was a Dutch citizen and her brother who was a Dutch citizen, she reached out to the Dutch ambassador to Lithuania, to um, Ambassador de Decker. And she sent him a letter and she asked him if it would be possible for the family to get visas to the Dutch East Indies. And, uh, and he wrote back to her and he told her, no, they were not giving visas to the Dutch East Indies. Actually, this was initially what she had done is she first went to the Dutch consul uh, in, in, in Kovna, which was Jan Zwartendijk, and I asked him about the Dutch East Indies, and he had said no. So then she went to the Dutch ambassador, asked him. He said no, but she didn't give up. She wrote back again to the ambassador, and she said, look, she said, my mother's a Dutch citizen, my brother's a Dutch citizen, I used to be a Dutch citizen. Isn't there anywhere we could go? Where could you give us a visa? And he wrote back to her and told her that um, she did not need a visa to go to the Dutch West Indies, to Curaçao or Suriname. What she needed was the permission of the governor of Curaçao. And if the per governor gave permission, then, then she could enter and they could enter as Dutch citizens. So my grandmother wrote a third time to the ambassador and she said, look, would you mind putting in my passport a notation that says, I do not need a visa to go to Curaçao or Suriname, but stop there. Don't say anything about needing the permission of the governor of Curaçao, because the truth is she never planned to travel to Curaçao. She just needed a notation that would enable her then to, on that basis, perhaps get a transit visa to go through some other country. So the a Dutch ambassador agreed. He said, send me your passport. She sent her Polish passport, which at that point was really no longer valid because Germany had invaded Poland. But she sent her Polish passport and he hand wrote in her passport in French, and we have a copy of that, 
um, that she does not need a visa to go to Curacao or Suriname. That notation was dated July 11th, 1940. When she got back her passport, she went back to the Dutch consul, Jan Zwartendijk, who was close to where they were in Vilna, and said, look, would you please copy what the Dutch ambassador wrote onto our travel documents? At that point, the Lithuanian government had been giving these individuals who are not citizens, but who needed travel documents, they gave them a litemas. So she asked, would you copy this onto our litemas? We have that original litemas. My father has the original litemas. It has a photograph. It was for my, both of my grandparents. So it has the names of my grandfather, my grandmother, and my father. And it has the, their p- pictures of all three of them on it. And Jan Zwartendijk agreed. He copied word for word that notation that the Dutch ambassador had written onto this litemas, saying that the bearers of this litemas did not need a visa to go to Curaçao or Suriname. That notation was dated July 22nd, 1940. With that notation in hand, somebody, and it might have been Jans Warndike, I don't know exactly whom, suggested to my grandmother that she reach out to the Japanese consul in Lithuania, uh, Shiuni Sugihara, to see if she could get a transit visa through Japan. The idea being it would be look as if she had been planning to go on to Kurosawa Suriname, but it would at least enable them to get out of Europe. So she went to Sugihara, and Sugihara agreed to give my grandmother, my grandfather, my father, but not just the three of them, also my great-grandmother who was traveling with them, and my great-uncle, my grandmother's mother and brother, gave all of them visas. On the list of visas that Sugihara kept, um, of all the visas that he issued, my great-grandmother is number 16, Rachel Sternheim. My grandfather is number 17, Isaac Levin, but that visa was the visa that was on the Leitemas that was for my grandfather, my grandmother, and my father. So that one visa was for three individuals. And then number 18 on the list, um, uh, Levi Sternheim was my grandmother's brother. That the date of that Sugihara visa is July 26, 1940. In Yukiko Sugihara's memoirs, she talks about how she will never forget the morning of July 27, 1940, because that morning they woke up to find a mob scene outside the consulate in Kovna, in, Japan, in uh, Lithuania, outside the Japanese consulate, filled with Jews, packed with Jews, trying to get in, wanting to know if they could get transit visas to Japan, because word had spread that this was a possible way out. My great uncle was studying in the yeshiva and his um, chavruta, his learning partner, was a gentleman by the name of uh, Nathan Gutworth. And I think there are stories that are talked about how Gutworth helped right, get this um, option and opportunity. And I think what happened is my great uncle shared this information with his learning partner. Word spread through the yeshiva, word spread through the community because people realized. And to Shiuni Sugihara's credit, what he ultimately did, and that's the story, is for the next month, basically, to, to the end of August, he stayed up around the clock. Most of these visas are handwritten. Ultimately, he got a stamp, but he wrote visas for these Jews. And it made no difference, you know, where they came from, what their nationality was. He disobeyed his government's orders. And he just kept issuing these visas 
utilizing this Curacao kind of non-visa visa, right? If you think about it, if you don't need a visa to go somewhere, you don't put a notation in your passport. You just don't have a visa, right? But here, what was happening is there was this notation and Jan Zorkendijk issued several more of these and then they created a stamp. Sugihara just created a stamp that basically said, this is a transit visa to Curacao or Suriname um, because he knew that they were being issued now to everybody. And it made it, it, it gave Sugihara the kind of the pretense to be able to say to the Japanese, I'm not just issuing people this for all these refugees to come to Japan. They have an ultimate destination, even though it was clear to him that this wasn't a real visa. Right. So, so that's really the miracle of Sugihara. And, then my, and my father and my grandparents, they took the Trans-Siberian Railroad um, uh, all the way to Vladivostok. Then they took a ship to Japan. They ended up in uh, Kobe in, uh, in Japan. Uh, my grandfather was on a list of prominent rabbis that the United States was willing to give visas to. Uh, so he was able to come over first with my father. My grandmother worked to try and see if she could secure visas for her mother and her brother. She wasn't able to. So ultimately, my grandmother came over to the United States and my grandma, great grandmother and great uncle ended up going ultimately going over to the Dutch East Indies. That's where they were able to go. Uh, my my great uncle was killed during the war. He died during the war. But my grandmother, um, ultimately after the war, uh, she had been in a civilians camp in the um, East Indies, came over to the United States, and she ended up being the only one of my father's grandparents that he knew. The other three grandparents perished in the Holocaust. He only knew one. So, Lisa, first of all, that's an amazing story, and thank you for sharing that with us. I had a few questions to ask. You mentioned that your grandparents were in Lithuania. Now, we know that there were reports that some of the Lithuanians were even worse than the Nazis. When your grandparents were there, when your grandmother was going to the uh, Dutch embassy, how bad was it then? Or was your grandmother just kind of reading the writing on the wall? Um, you said that first the ambassador said, no, come back. Can you walk us through, first of all, what was the situation then in Lithuania for Jews? Uh, the Dutch ambassador, was he being a jerk about it? Or was he just saying, I'd love to help you, but I can't? Was his tone, you know, like dismissive? And between the times that, you know, he said no and your mother, grandmother went back and forth, how much time transpired? You know, they didn't have emails back in those days. So how long was the process from the time that she first started uh, until she finally was able to get the, um, the visas? So I have to be honest with you. I did not have, and I'm sorry, the conversations with my grandmother about these. Um, she passed away when I was a teenager. Uh, my grandfather wrote about this exchange in a book of his, um, which is where I have the copy. I'm not sure what happened to her actual passport. He wrote about it, though not uh, much more. He was a historian, so he delivered it much more kind of as a historical documentation as opposed to this really firsthand um, account. Um, but uh, clearly, I don't know how soon um, she started, but they... He left Poland in September 39. They left uh, and they got this pass, this visa in July of 1940. So we're, you know, that's the, that's the time span. They were there in Vilna. Um, my grandfather's parents ended up um, being unable to 
come with them to uh, to Vilna, right? My grandfather, because they fled so quickly, my grandparents had been in Ludge. My great grandfather, who was the member of the Polish Sem, was the chief rabbi in a the south of of south of Poland called Resha or Zeshev. He was the Resha Rub, the chief rabbi there. And uh, my grandfather had actually thought that he would go back to Poland to try and help get his parents smuggled across the border. And the first thing the Germans did is they stopped all the trains. So he wasn't able to get back in to Poland, which actually saved my grandparents, my grandfather's life. But my great grandfather wasn't so lucky. He did um, end up in, in Lvov um, and was ultimately arrested there. And the truth is killed by the um, Lithuanians. So the anti-Semitism in Lithuania was definitely very, very strong. Um, I don't know exactly what the story was during that period that my grandparents were in Vilna, what they experienced then. I know that they were already certainly in Poland experiencing, my grandfather had experienced anti-Semitism in the city council in Ludz. Um, but she was aware. I mean, she was, she was reading and she was watching and she knew that Europe was not safe for Jews. Elisa? Uh, in an interview with uh, JNS, you said that as president of the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law, there's a relevance of Sugiyara's story to combating modern-day anti-Semitism. Can you talk about that, please? Sure. One of the things that was really extraordinary about Sugihara is that at a time when Jews were being stigmatized and marginalized, Sugihara treated them as human beings, right? He gave them hope. And he gave them life when there were others who were really seeking to rob them of their dignity. And I think that what we see today is that once again, Jews are being stigmatized and marginalized. Um, This time, though, it may not be on the basis of religion or race. Today, what we see and what I see particularly on campuses at the Brandeis Center is that Jews are being targeted on the basis of our ethnicity, Right. When Jews take pride in our sense of Jewish peoplehood and in the Jews' deep religious and ethnic and cultural and ancestral connection to the land of Israel, those Jews are now being pressured right, to shed that part. Right. That's right. the if we if we dare to have the audacity to celebrate our ethnicity with pride, we're being told, no, you may not do that. You may not do that if you want to be accepted in today's society, particularly in today's progressive um, communities. And, and if you want to fight for racial or social justice, you're being told the first thing that you have to do is uh, check your ethnic pride, check your support for, for Israel, right? Disavow your sense of, of Jewish peoplehood. Um, today, the Jewish homeland, right? The Jewish nation state of Israel that one democracy in the Middle East where all races and religions and ethnicities and genders are equal under the law, that's the only nation state today that's targeted and called by some illegitimate, right? It's the only country that some say has no right to exist. That's today's contemporary form of anti-Semitism. And we all have to combat it, right? The lesson of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust is that anti-Semitism is not just a Jewish problem. It, it's a cancer that rots away at and ultimately destroys any society that fails to curb it. So that's why I think, right, as, um, as, a, as a child of Sugihara, of, of Sugihara survivors, right, as a, I, I find that, um, that there's not just this deep gratitude 
but there's this enormous sense of responsibility that comes with being a survivor. You talked about it, Bela, when you say we have, we must not forget, right? I think mm-hmm. that those who survive feel that number one, we don't take anything for granted, but we really feel that we're here for a reason. And, um, and that that reason is to try and educate and to try and um, teach and to pay forward the kindness that we received, but to also fight injustice. And, um, and so I think that, uh, you know, what I try and do at the Brandeis Center certainly is, well, I I try and follow in my father's footsteps, right? I learned from my father. He spent so much of his professional career trying to protect Jews from being discriminated against on the basis of their religion. And now I find myself trying to protect Jews from being discriminated against on the basis of our ethnicity. Yeah, The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Aliza, another question for you. It's been reported, at least if you watch Schindler's List, that he was initially, he was a womanizer, a drinker, and a member of the Nazi party. And his initial um, idea was to use Jews for cheap labor. And then eventually he became a Jewish sympathizer and saved Jews. And then he took it more, you know, uh, in a personalized it. Do we know the history of uh, Ambassador Sugihara? Uh, was he always somebody that uh, saw the Jews as victims? Is it something that he started out saying, you know, let me help these people out. And then all of a sudden, oh, my God, they're being targeted. What is his background in history that he became a savior for so many? And I guess quickly. I think he would say that, I mean, it was something that he saw and felt at that moment. It's not that he was in any way, you know, prior to that involved with the Jewish community. He saw these individuals in need. He realized that he was in a position where he could help. Um, and he did. And, uh, and that's the, that's the, that's what's really remarkable about him, right? He did it and he did it unlike Schindler too, with no benefit to himself. Right. In fact, just the opposite. he, he, was relieved of his duties later on by the by the Japanese government because of what he did. He just had the moral fortitude to do what was right, and as I say, to recognize that um, that all human beings are deserving of of kindness and respect and um, and life and liberty, right? And he um, he 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 did what was. Um, so important to do. And we just, we don't have enough of that today, right? We need people to realize that no matter what your background, no matter what your faith, no matter what your race, no matter what your religion, right? We need to treat each other as human beings. And um, we're losing some of that, uh, that um, gentlemanly respect for other human beings. Aliza, you know, can I follow up on that? And also uh, what Bela had asked earlier, because I'm following this a lot. Um, You know, we see that, let's say, against discrimination against blacks or other groups, they're perceived as historical victims. Jews are not perceived as victims. We are perceived, you know, on one side, we control the banks, the media, we control everything. And you've had politicians for years, and I'm not going to say they did it intentionally, but for how many decades did we hear certain politicians say, you know, the, you know, one side represents Wall Street, we represent Main Street. The bankers, the bankers, even without mentioning Jews. Then you have the political aspect of it, Israel. So part of the problem is, is that we have been lumped in as the oppressors, 
And if some, if sometimes we get, we take it on the chin, boo hoo, you're rich, you're powerful, you know, be a man and take it. And that's also how, you know, we're allowing ourselves to be defined uh, in that manner. So there's an interesting, I don't want, Jews should not be defined as victims. There's no doubt, however, that the definition of anti-Semitism and what anti-Semitism has done over the centuries is always use the Jew as the scapegoat, right? So while anti-Semitism may look a little different in each generation, the one constant is that whatever society views as its greatest misfortune, whatever is viewed as the worst evil of that generation is pinned on the Jew and the Jew is blamed, the Jew is othered, the Jew is, is pushed out because the idea is that, but for the Jew, the world would be a better place, right? So whether it was that the Jew was the Christ killer or for socialists, the Jew was the capitalist or the other way around for capitalists, the Jew was a socialist. During the Black Death, the Jews were the, you know, cause of the bubonic plagues. Just like today, you have people who are blaming the Jews for COVID. When it was the Nazis who were seeking a pure Aryan race, the Jews were the race polluter. If you think about it today, What's the issue that has you know, led to massive demonstrations and rioting in the United States? It's the issue of, as you put it, racism, apartheid, settler colonialism. And isn't it interesting? It's not just Jews, as you say, individual Jews who are being called the oppressors. But it's also in today's society, what do we have now in the past century? What's new is that we don't just have individual Jews. We have a Jewish collective. There's a Jewish homeland. And it is the... Jewish homeland that now by many is being deemed the worst offender of this generation's greatest evils, right? Who's the worst offender when it comes to racism, apartheid, settler colonialism? The Jewish nation state, that Israel. That's today's anti-Semitism, right? If traditional anti-Semitism sought to brand the Jew with that yellow star of David and exclude him, deny him his place in society, right? We boycott the Jew, then the contemporary anti-Semitism is trying to do the same thing to the Jewish collective, to the Jewish nation state and deny it its place in the society of nations. And any Jew who, as part of their identity as a Jew, celebrates their sense of Jewish peoplehood and the Jews' ancient connection to the land of Israel, if you dare do that as an expression of your identity as a Jew, you are automatically branded, right, as one of these uh, guilty of one of today's worst, you know, worst offenses, you are the racist. You are the oppressor. That's that's the challenge we have today is getting people Elise, to understand that that's anti-Semitism. Yeah. Lisa, and this is very personal. Um, I said in my opening monologue uh, that I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. And my childhood friends were also children of Holocaust survivors. And I talk about this frequently with my friends that there was a certain fear that our parents had when we would be late coming home or if we would just leave. There was a there was an overprotectiveness that seemed like it was coming from a place of deep fear. And as I got older and met people who were not children of Holocaust survivors, that's when I noticed the difference in, in children who were brought up by Holocaust survivors as opposed to those who were not. Can you please share with us what was it like for you growing up? So the truth is, I, I, my father will even say that my grandfather wouldn't call himself a, a survivor, right? He was a, a refugee. He, they fled. He, they have many family that were lost in the Holocaust. I, so I think that the, even though my father 
left when he was three. It's not as if I grew up the child of someone who really went through and was a survivor, for instance, of a concentration camp. Um, my childhood, though, I will say, I was very drawn to the stories of the Holocaust. As a kid, I used to read every one of the kind of young adult um, historical fiction books about children of the Holocaust, right? Whether they were actual bio, you know, stories, uh, true stories or fictional, fictionalized accounts, because I I felt this deep need to really understand what happened and what people went through. I think because for me, it felt very close. I remember looking as a child at photographs taken by Roman Vishniak, the photograph who used a hidden camera to take pictures in the ghettos. And I remember seeing pictures of the Lodge ghetto in 1939 and thinking, oh my goodness, that is taken just months after my family fled Europe. That's where they lived. That's who they were. Like how close my family came to being the people in those photographs, right? So I always felt that the Holocaust was right there. You know, I could touch it. Um, I remember hearing a survivor once say that he thought that grandparents, right? This was somebody who survived the Holocaust and had no grandparents. He thought that grandparents were something that non-Jews had, but Jews didn't have grandparents. Nice. And that's the way my grandfather, my, my father grew up, right? He only had one grandparent. My, we call my, my father, my kids call him Opa. Why? Because the only grandmother he knew was his Dutch grandmother and she was his Oma. So when he became a grandparent, he wanted to be called an Opa because that was the only grandparent he ever knew. So I felt it, um, but they never, it, it wasn't, I never had that overprotective sense that you, that, that you described. I definitely felt extremely grateful. And as I say, I've always felt that the blessings that I have been able um, to receive, right? My whole growing up in the United States and all the opportunities I've been given, I have always felt that I, I'm supposed to use them for a reason, that I have to give back, that that's why I'm here. That's beautiful. Yeah. We're running out of time. Actually, you are out of time. The, the bottom line is we must never forget the Holocaust and never forget those who did the right thing at great danger to themselves. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to our listening audience for tuning in to The Definitive Wrap. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.